We were talking earlier, I mean, Oklahoma weather's legendary, but even so, this is just weird. You know, this morning I started the day and I thought, great, it's Wednesday, that means severe weather. But I didn't realize it's Wednesday, that means get a jacket. That was crazy. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you, uh, give you just a logistical announcement, because I know there, there are several people here that don't go to church here, so they don't necessarily see our Sunday bulletins. But this is our last session of class, Wednesday night class, for this session. In other words, uh, for the next several weeks, we won't have any Wednesday night programming in the church because we have some events going on. We do this every year in June, tail end of May and June. It just happens to catch us in mid-series. So after this lesson, we will pause. We're going to finish Revelation. We're going to pause, and then we kick back off for the summer session of all our classes, kids, everything that goes on here, July 1st. So you'll have to kind of hold that thought, you know, for several weeks, but we will finish Revelation. I just didn't want to rush it. So after this lesson, church won't have Wednesday night programming until July 1st, and then we will pick back up and we'll finish Revelation, okay? So I just want to kind of let you know that because I know that it'll be in our church bulletin, but not everyone here goes to church here, which is great. Bring your friends. We've got plenty of seats, so you're welcome. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for this evening. Grateful for our fellowship, the ability to dive in and study your word. I pray that not only will it satisfy and increase our knowledge, as you've uh, told us to do, but also that it'll translate into increased faith and confidence in who you are and what you will do. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, questions? You know the number by now and the drill on that. We are in chapter 13 of Revelation. We're kind of halfway through what's generally called the tribulation. We're in that midpoint. We are studying four major views. You notice I'm talking a little less about the preterist view as we go on because it is largely focused at this point on the fall of Jerusalem and spe very specific events at that time. The other views are the historical, that this is a roadmap for history. Futurist, no, it's a roadmap for seven years in the future. And symbolic means that these events are not necessarily tied I'm going to show you a chart because one of the things you're starting to realize is Old Testament prophecy, uh, particularly the apocalyptic prophecy, is tying into Revelation. There's a lot of flashback. This is a futurist chart. The reason is the futurists make the best charts. Hard to make a symbolic chart when nothing really corresponds to anything, you know, but futurist charts. We talked in our last lesson about the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks, and we talked about the day for a year in prophecy, so 70 weeks is actually uh, 70 sevens of years, 490 years. And so this is a little bit of a map of that. I did that simply to locate us in time, to kind of fix where we are and what we're doing. But Daniel is going to figure heavily. It's chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11. A lot of these prophecies, all the different views, think they play into Revelation in different ways, but that they play into the book of Revelation. If you want to just look to the far right side, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, which would be that last set of seven years, is what futurists understand to be what we're talking about. Chapters 4 through chapter 19 
the book of Revelation would be describing that seven years commonly called the tribulation or the 70th week, meaning the tail end of Daniel's prophecy. We are literally in the middle of that, if you're a futurist, that what we're going to speak about is events in the middle. We've had seven seals opened and cataclysmic things are happening. Then we had seven trumpets that sounded. We're in a little bit of an interlude right now in the middle, and we will continue with the final set of judgments coming. And then we move on into some really interesting end times. But just, I thought you might appreciate knowing that from a futurist view, that's where we are. Symbolic view does not think this, these prophecies are located necessarily in a seven-year period in the future. Nevertheless, symbolic view understands all of this to be a fulfillment of that prophecy. Just don't understand it to be fixated only in a seven-year period in the future. So, thanks to the futurists for the great charts. And we left in our last lesson, if you remember, right in the middle of the tribulation, Satan comes on the scene. Satan is uh, attacking God's people, various symbolic language in the last couple of chapters. And we closed it out in chapter 12, was what happened was Satan rebelled against God. And there was war in heaven between Satan and his angels, which are, we call them demons, but it's Satan and his, the angels that rebelled with him against Michael and his angels. And if you remember, Satan lost and was cast out. When he was cast out of heaven down to the earth, and we talked about that being a sign of the time of Jesus defeating Satan at the cross. If you're symbolic understanding, you understand that to be Jesus defeating Satan at the cross. The dragon was enraged at the woman, this is God's people, and went off to war against her people, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. So the scene is, in the middle of this tribulation, or in this church age, you see Satan being very active. Satan was expelled because, interesting little passage from Isaiah that talks about Lucifer or Satan. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven, I'll raise my throne above the stars of God, and the last verse there, I will make myself like the Most High. Satan's aspiration is to be God, and that's going to play heavily into our lesson to understand why this plays out the way it plays. He wants to be God. And so as we move on, you're going to see him set up his own trinity. So you're going to be introduced to a couple of beasts that the dragon is going to raise up from the land and the sea. They're commonly called the Antichrist and the False Prophet. And so what you have is Satan setting himself up as God. He's going to build himself a kingdom. He's been cast out of heaven. That can't be his kingdom. He can't defeat God, so he decides he's going to rule this world. And if you remember, Jesus in his ministry speaks of Satan as the ruler of this present age. So he is going to set up a trinity. And so he's going to get his Christ, called an antichrist. He's going to get his Holy Spirit or his witness, this false prophet. He's going to set up worship. People are going to worship him. And you know how God sealed his people with his Holy Spirit? And then earlier in the book, he put his seal somehow on them to say, you belong to me. He's going to get his own seal and put his seal on his people that are worshiping him. And so what you see Satan as an imitator, in a sense, he's going to set up this trinity, this counterfeit trinity. So let's meet his helpers. And as we move into chapter 13, that's what we, we meet. John says, I saw the vision as Satan was standing at the shore of the sea. He said, I saw a beast 
coming out of the sea. And the beast had ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns on his horns. If you go back to the description of the dragon, Satan, this is a lot like that. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seems to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who could make war against him? So this is uh, Antichrist. This is the Antichrist coming onto the scene. And so Satan raises up this servant, this Antichrist. Before we talk about who that is, let's look at some of the symbols and decode this a little bit so you'll see why the different views understand it the way they do. First of all, coming up out of the sea is a symbol. The sea is a symbol of the political world. It's used a lot in the Old Testament by Jewish prophets to talk about all the Gentile nations, all the people out there. So some commentators are going to understand the sea as, well, Gentiles. But in general, what it means is this is a political figure, political, military, some kind of a figure that's, that's really operating in the political world. So the sea represents the political world. So this could be a world ruler. It could be a nation. It could be an entity. A lot of people think of the Antichrist will be something like the UN, in other words, a world organization. So think something political that has power, exercises temporal power in the world. That's the symbol of the sea. The seven heads are going to be interpreted for us later in chapter 17 to be the seven hills on which the empire sits. We'll leave that for another time. The ten horns and the ten diadems, the ten crowns. Seven is the perfect number of completeness, but ten is also a number of completeness, if you will, kind of an earthly number. We have ten fingers, ten toes, and so it's a sense of wholeness. Ten is just a good whole number for us, and so to have ten horns means to have a lot of earthly power. Remember, horn is a typical symbol for strength whether that's personal strength or military strength or political strength or influence. So what it's saying is ten horns is this entity, it's a beast, but it's, it's a nation or a person or, or something, is going to have really a lot of power, a lot of political power. The diadems on top of the horns means it's going to have authority, like a king. Think of a king's crown. So having ten of those is basically having a lot of authority. So the symbols are starting to speak not necessarily about who this is, but the attributes. And frankly, a symbolic view would say, that's the main message. It's not so much trying to tell you who it is as it's saying there's going to rise up some entity that'll have this military power and be a political influence. Uh, third symbol, talk about these beasts a little bit. He said, this beast resembled a leopard and also a bear and also a lion. There's a vision, and I'm just going to tell you about it instead of spending a lot of time on it, but in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision about the future. Now think of Daniel as prophesying in six centuries before Christ. I mean, long, long, long time before this. Daniel has this prophecy about four beasts that he sees. These are the beasts. He sees a lion, 
He sees a, a leopard, he sees a bear, and then a fourth beast that's even more powerful than all of them. And the way that is pretty commonly understood is it's Daniel sitting there under the Babylonian Empire who has conquered God's people. They've destroyed Jerusalem and they deported Daniel and his friends and the Jews are under the authority of the Babylonian Empire that that's the lion. And that Daniel is forecasting another great empire is going to come and that would be the Persian Empire. And after that, a third beast, another empire, which would be the Greeks, think Alexander the Great. And then finally that fourth beast in his vision that's really powerful, the Roman Empire coming. So it's pretty common understanding of Daniel that that prophecy is kind of telling you what's going to happen after the defeat of God's people that these four kingdoms are going to come. And it gets you to the Roman Empire. And pretty universally understood that that fourth beast is the most powerful. It's the Roman Empire. That's the time period where Revelation is written. John is writing it. Our dating is going to be about 95 AD under the emperor Domitian and the Roman Empire is the rib power in the world. So he's kind of living out at the tail end of this prophecy and he flashes back to it. And he said, you guys kind of remember Daniel where he talked about all these kingdoms that were in opposition to God? Well, this beast looks like them. So you see the connection? Those beasts are basically saying, you remember those kingdoms that were not for God, they were anti-God? That's what this guy is. He's also anti-God, and in some sense, he sort of collects up all of that. Does that make sense? That's what the beasts are talking about. They're flashing back to the idea in Daniel 7. And so this beast has a lot of political power. It's going to be some kind of political or military force, person, or nation. And it's going to somehow embody these empires that try to control the world and are, are hostile to God. So those are some of the symbols that you kind of begin, what is he talking about with this beast? Well, he's talking about an entity that has those attributes. And then finally, there's that curious thing, I'm just going to give you a little side thing, about having a wound that was fatal, but he's been healed. Curious, so I'll just give you a little sideline. Some commentators, especially futurists, want to understand this as a succession of kings, and that one of them is going to appear to have been assassinated and miraculously healed. Historical view, or the preterists would say, actually, there's a, a legend way, way back, shortly before the time that John wrote this about the emperor Nero. He died in 68 AD, and he died by stabbing himself in the throat. Tragic story, but not a nice guy, so it's not that tragic. But basically, he ends up killing himself, but there was a rumor and a big legend at the time that he was going to come back from the dead. I mean, he was going to come back and rule, and nobody was really excited about it because he wasn't a very good emperor. But that maybe it's referring to that. But in some way or another, this is saying this beast, this entity or this person or whatever it is, is somehow going to appear to have some miraculous things happen. Do you notice, though, that it's sort of in a counterfeit way kind of mimics the resurrection of Christ? Do you see how what's happening here is they're trying to explain to us that what Satan is trying to do is be God, and he has his antichrist and his false prophet, and his antichrist is going to appear to be resurrected. You kind of see what's happening. You get the picture of what Satan's plan is. So that's the imagery of the beast. So let's ask the question, who do the different views think this is? Historicist view, which says everything that's happening here is kind of a roadmap of history from the resurrection of Christ to the second coming. 
And if you remember, we've kind of made it to the Protestant Reformation, 1517, Luther you know, nails up his, his uh, protests against the Catholic Church. Well, the historicist view says, you know, this is talking about that time period. This is actually telling you what happened. And so they're going to understand the Antichrist, okay, with due apologies to everyone here who grew up Catholic. Think the historicists at this time were John Calvin, Martin Luther was a historicist, all the guys that translated the King James Bible, 1600, you know, this is back in the 1500s and 1600s, they very much understood this as being about the Catholic Church and that the Catholic Church was not a force for good for Christianity, that they were very much off track. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton was a historicist view. Modern day, uh, this is the view of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is that this historicist understanding of Revelation, meaning it's telling you about what happened. They are going to understand the, that, if, remember I told you that that fourth beast is just in Daniel's, is, is identified with Rome? They take that up and they say that's exactly right. This Antichrist is Rome, but it's Rome in the sense of papal Rome the Roman Catholic Church. So a historicist view understands the Antichrist, this beast being the papacy. Not any particular pope necessarily, but the idea of the pope and the Catholic Church is actually opposed to God, is trying to set itself up. So historicist view sees the Catholic Church, the papacy, the institution itself, and I'll tell you why in, in a, just a minute in the next verse. Futurists, of course, they don't see this as a roadmap to the past. They're looking to that seven-year period in the future. Futurists are going to understand this as a literal new Roman Empire. Not a Roman Empire like with swords and that kind of thing, but a new powerful empire. Remember, the futurists think we're already in the middle of a nuclear war, and people are attacking Israel. And this is going to be a ruler at the head of a new confederation that becomes a new world power, a new revived Roman Empire. And this Antichrist is going to be an individual. Some futurists think this will be a very talented, charismatic individual, very good leader. And many people say, wow, we're in the middle of turmoil. Remember, we're in the middle of the tribulation and all the bad things that happen. We need a leader to help us. And the whole world turns to him. Some futurists think that Satan enters into him and possesses him, meaning he becomes Satan's creature. Or others would say, no, he's just evil. He's going about doing evil things in the world, and he wants to set himself up as God. But in any case, they'll understand this is a particular individual who will rise up in the middle of that seven-year period and unite basically huge military power, make a, a, a large uh, nation. If you remember, it kind of recalls that idea of a new Rome. When John wrote this, the emperor Domitian called himself Lord and God. And so you begin to see this idea for a futurist is this is going to be a ruler who thinks he's God or wants to be, and he's really serving Satan. And then finally, a symbolic view looks at this and says, you know, it doesn't have to be a specific person. It doesn't have to be a specific nation. This is a great description of every government every ruler throughout all of the history of the church who has been opposed to God and tried to oppress God's people, whether that's Adolf Hitler or Attila the Hun or Soviet Russia or China uh, persecuting Christians, that's this message. Does that make sense? A little more of a symbolic understanding. 
So everybody thinks this is the Antichrist, it's just in what guise or in what form. Well, what is the Antichrist going to do? As the passage goes on, it says, This beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercises authority for 42 months. If we're in the middle of the tribulation, for futures view, you have three and a half years before, you have 42 months, three and a half years left. So the second half of that tribulation, this beast is going to be the power in the world, this guy in their case, this nation or this leader. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power. Now, that's interesting. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, nation, pretty much over the earth. So he's got, he is the dominant power in the world. All the inhabitants of earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain. In other words, all who are not followers of Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, he will go. And he wants to be killed with the sword, he'll be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. In other words, this is going to be a very difficult time for Christians. So this is what the Antichrist is doing. Well, the historicists would say, yes, this is what the Catholic Church was doing. Catholic Church was persecuting the true believers, the Protestants. I'm just putting it in our language today. So a historicist would understand this as the Protestant movement of being the real followers, and somehow the papacy had basically uh, distorted Christianity. Now, let me just give you a little brief sideline here on the Catholic Church. It's really difficult to defend those Renaissance popes right before the time. I mean, the Catholic Church was extremely corrupt at that time, and had you lived then, this would make a lot of sense. To be fair, I also think that the Catholic Church is all that got Europe through the 14th century. I think with the bubonic plagues, I think Europe could have fallen into complete and utter chaos without the organization of the Catholic Church. Having said that, the reformers looked at this and said, this is basically telling us about the Roman Catholic Church. One of the reasons they think that is because this beast is blasphemous. And blasphemy is basically defined as making yourself equal to God or taking the prerogatives of God. It's not so much saying bad things about God, like, oh, you know, he looks ugly and, you know, his mother dresses him funny. It's not that so much as it is kind of a I want to be God kind of things. I think I am God. And so they point to things like this. Let me just show you some statements through history. So this is what a historicist view, my point is to you, is simply this. Like, for example, the papacy. Uh, one example, Pope Nicholas V said this, the Roman pontiff judges all men but is judged by no one. I have the authority of the king of kings. I am all in all and above all. In other words, the idea of the papacy is being Christ's representative on earth. And you'll see how that idea comes to really, really, really elevate this. And so a historicist view will say, that's what this is talking about, is that kind of wanting to become God. And so the papacy is this beast, is an antichrist. Pope Leo in 1894, we hold the place of Almighty God on earth, talking about Pope. You know that I am the Holy Father, Pope Pius said in 1922, the representative of God on earth, the vicar of Christ, which means that I am God on the earth. A historicist understanding of Revelation will apply this prophecy to those things because of this idea of blasphemy. The futurist view is basically going to say that this uh, beast 
is really going to compel, using his military power and the power of the state and his influence and his popularity, is going to compel people to worship him. Think ancient Rome and the emperor cult. If you remember Domitian, he set up shrines where people basically worshipped him. Now that started back with Julius Caesar, think before the time of Jesus. And Julius Caesar, after he died, the Senate said, you know, we think he was a god. And then Caesar Augustus, the emperor when Jesus was born. The word Augustus is a title for a god. But by the time of Domitian, they said, why wait till you die? I'll just be a god now. And so they started making people worship the emperor as a god. And so that's what futurists see, is this is going to be a future ruler who's kind of like a Roman emperor. He's going to get people to worship him as a god. He's going to compel that worship. So they see kind of the parallelism of what was happening in John's time when this was written and what's going to happen in that seven-year period. It's going to be like deja vu all over again. And then finally, the, uh, the symbolic view understands this not as one specific government or ruler, but many. But they see it as governments throughout time enforcing worship of that government's ideology. Think Mao Zedong and the unbelievable purges of religion and really anybody that disagreed with the communist ideology. Think Stalin and Lenin in Russia and the purges of just mass murder of anybody that didn't buy into the ideology of the state over and over again throughout history. Symbolic view, though, sees something really interesting in this. They see this as every government of every time, every power of every time that's tried to squelch the beliefs in God's people and say, no, you're going to worship our ideology. And a lot of people think that's what's happening today in our world over and over again, but that all those governments fall and that this is actually a pretty hopeful message is that God, none of those governments have ever defeated God's people, and they won't now. So symbolic view says this looks bad, but this is a pretty hopeful message. So that's, that's the Antichrist, who the Antichrist is, what the Antichrist will do. There's some interesting lessons uh, out of that. One is the Antichrist is kind of the demonic counterpart to Jesus Christ. It's Satan setting himself up as God. Second thing I'd observe is Antichrist is the corruption and distortion of what God ordained government to be. Because you read in Romans 13 that we're supposed to be good citizens because God said, I set up government to punish the guilty and reward the innocent and to have justice on the earth. Just as Satan is corrupting the idea of the Trinity, got this kind of unholy Trinity going, he's also corrupting government. It's not protecting people now, it's oppressing people. And so you tend to see everything Satan touches as being corrupted. And you'll see that run all through this. And you see that in our lives today. And then finally, this idea of perseverance of the saints, that the saints must persevere through this, that's less a theological idea as it's played out. It's, an, it's just basically saying that you should expect Satan to do everything he can because he's been expelled from heaven and he's trying to war on God's people. You should expect that you will need to persevere, that you will have difficulties. And you know what, though? Jesus said that. He said, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And that's true. He has overcome Satan, but Satan is indeed allowed in this time period, whether it's seven years in the future if you're a futurist, or if it's throughout this historical period if you're a historicist, both would agree Satan has been allowed 
to oppress God's people for a time. And so we are persevering for some purpose that God has in mind. Well, let me pause with the Antichrist, see if we have any questions. Um, if futurists believe in the rapture before the tribulation, then um, what's happening in Revelation 13.10, where it talks about the believers persevering? Yes. Okay, so futurists, you got a couple flavors. Not all futurists believe in a rapture before the seven-year, called a pre-tribulation rapture. Dispensationalists, that's kind of a flavor, the way I'm treating it. We're just going to talk about it as, a, as kind of a style of futurists believe that the rapture occurs there. Some believe it occurs at the end of the seven years, and some even think it happens in the middle. But let me just be specific. For those who believe that the rapture happens before this seven years, let's go to the futurist point of view, who are the believers? You remember the 144,000 in the tribulation that get marked? I told you that most futurists understand that one of two ways. Either those are people who become Christians in this time of tribulation. They actually, it's not too late. That's a great hopeful message that no matter what ha if you believe in the, uh, the rapture happening, it's still not too late. There are a certain number of believers and that they're the ones being persecuted. Dispensationalists say no, because a dispensational distinctive think teaching is that is God's not through with Israel. They're gonna say the Christians are gone, but these are Jews who accept Jesus Christ during the seven years. So either way you look at it, these believers that are being persecuted, if you think the church has already been raptured, are believers who have come to Christ during that time. Good question. Okay, so why does God allow the devil to take these actions? Couldn't he just crush him whenever he wanted? Yeah, great question. And probably the answer to that we'll do at the end of the book, but not to dodge your question, could he crush Satan? Of course he can crush Satan. That's one of the great myths uh, that people who haven't really read the Bible very much think, well, you've got God for good, you've got Satan for evil, and it's a really close battle. It's probably going into double overtime. You know, it's really tight. That's not the message of the Bible at all. It's not the message of Revelation at all. You notice, as I kind of pointed out to you, that the beast was allowed to oppress God's people. So whether this, this suits you or not, the Bible says God is allowing this to happen for his purposes. He can crush Satan. He, Satan has been defeated in every sense at the cross. He used to have a mortgage on you and on me because of our sin. And he used to say, see, God, I own these people. I'm going to rule them. You do whatever you want to do in heaven, but stay out of my place. Jesus said, you know, actually, those people belong to me. I'm going to buy them back. We call that redeeming. That's what that word redeem means. He comes on the cross, pays the price, and buys us back. So one of the reasons God waited was to save us. And there is a sense in which God says, I still have more people to buy back, to come back to me. But in the appointed time, I will deal with Satan. So that's kind of the biblical answer of why is God waiting? Okay? Well, we need to introduce you to the next player in this because Satan's not quite through. He's got his Antichrist. Again, historicist, that's the papacy, and this is the continuing saga of the history of the church, or futurist. This is a ruler on, in a large nation that comes together, and he's going to do some interesting things with Israel, which we'll talk about in the future. But 
the dragon not only raises up a beast out of the sea, he also raises up a second beast. And we're just moving on in chapter 13. I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He's different looking. Notice this. You're going to figure out this symbology just like that. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beef on his, uh, beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabits, inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound has been healed. He performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of people. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in the honor of the beast who was wounded, the Antichrist, and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of that Antichrist so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Well, let's pause and let's look at this symbols a little bit. First of all, let me go backwards. Think about somebody in the Bible that you know who said, bow down and worship my image or I'm going to kill you. Our buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, right? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm a god. Here's an image to me. You guys all bow down and worship it. You see him grabbing those ideas and saying, that's what, this guy's going to be like Nebuchadnezzar. This is going to be a ruler who wants to be worshipped. He's going to kill people who won't worship him. Think Roman Empire, Domitian. He wanted people to, to worship him. For the next 200 years, they killed Christians because they wouldn't worship the emperor. Futurists are going to say, and it's going to happen again with this big, big, big antichrist in the future. So this is going to be, and this, this beast is called the false prophet later in Revelation. So let's tell you now, this is the false prophet is how he's referred to. Well, let's look at the symbology. You notice that he comes out of the land. The land is a spiritual world. If the sea is the political world, the land means this is something in the spiritual realm it doesn't deal so much with military and politics. It deals with religion or spirituality. This beast, that's why he's called a false prophet, is coming as a religious or an ideological figure, an advocate in some way. Notice he has two horns like a lamb. So these horns aren't so much about strength, like a ram's horn, but two small horns. A lot of people think that that's just kind of a mocking the two witnesses. Remember the two witnesses last time who came? and who prophesied for 42 months, you know, kind of in your face, Satan, and they think, okay, well, my prophet's going to have two, two horns. Like a lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. This beast is going to act like Jesus. He's going to impersonate Jesus. This figure, whoever this figure is, is going to tell you, I'm a good guy. What I'm telling you is good for you that you need to believe this. I'm on the side of right. So this is going to be someone who impersonates a good figure, someone who has your interests at heart. But he spoke like a dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. But he really is giving you Satan's message. Does that make sense? This is going to be a figure who is advocating a religion, say, so you need to worship the Antichrist. And he's speaking to you literally the words of Satan. But he's acting to you like, no, I'm really holy. So he's going to be a deceiver in another sense. Think about uh, Jesus in John chapter 8 said, Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies. That's this false prophet. He's going to look like the lamb, but he's going to talk like the dragon. 
And then in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about uh, even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Satan masquerades as a good guy. And so the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to say, hey, we're here to save the world. We're here to help you. We're going to do good things for you. But they're really giving you the message of Satan. So he's called the false prophet later, and I just, I just want you to think about what you heard in those seven letters to the churches in Revelation 1 through 3 is you see two things happening. You see the coercive power of the state, and you also see the deceptive power of the ideology as well. Well, what do historicists think about this? They thought that the Antichrist was the Pope. Who do they think the false prophet is? They tend to think of it as the Catholic Church itself, the priesthood who are executing the papal authority. So you see the pattern here. The historicists would understand basically the Catholic system. The pope is the Antichrist, not a pope, but the idea of a pope is an Antichrist. And then all the rest of the church, the priests, are those prophets who are getting you to worship the Antichrist. So a historicist, you see a common theme, are going to understand this as the Catholic church in history perverting the truth. Makes sense if you're a Protestant at that time, you're Luther or you're Calvin, because you see that as a perversion of Christianity. They would look at Matthew 7:15, where Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Isn't that interesting? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. What does that mean? They look innocent, but they're not. That could literally be a description of this beast, of this false prophet. He looks like a lamb, but he talks like a dragon. So very deceptive. Futurists will say this is a religious leader in the future. Remember, the Antichrist is going to be a nation, but more actually a a leader of that nation in the future. This is going to be his kind of right-hand buddy who is a religious leader in the future. Many futurists think this is going to be the apostate Christian church. In other words, they would look at right now and they'd say, when you look at the world, you begin to see the enemies of Israel lining up and that somehow they're going to come together and this charismatic leader that Satan's going to raise up to unite this military power. They would also look at the church, I'm talking about Christian church kind of throughout the world and say, there's so many false teachers in the church, there's going to rise up one of them and lead a lot of Christians astray and actually going to act like I'm all for Christ, but I'm going to end up getting you to worship this Antichrist. Does that make sense? You're going to see these as two figures in the future, in the future during that seven-year period. uh, Symbolic, just as you would expect. They see the Antichrist as throughout history, every government and power that's been opposed to God. They would see that as anyone using political or coercive power to try to make you leave the church, make you follow their way. Then they would see the false prophet as every power in history that deceived you into doing it. Think media, television, messaging. So they see the Antichrist and the false prophet, one of them trying to coerce you, persecute you into leaving the faith, the other trying to entice you. Does that make sense? So symbolic would say that's not just one person, that's a lot of things in history, and it's a lot of things going on right now. So that's the the, uh, false prophet in a nutshell. Question about that? That makes sense? You kind of see how all the views are at least consistent. Historicists, this is the Catholic system leading people astray, both militarily as well as spiritually. Futurists, 
It's a world leader and a world religious leader, symbolic. This is Satan, whether he's going to try to beat you over the head with a stick or entice you into sin. He's trying to draw you away from Christ. Well, as it moves on, it talks about this really interesting uh, thing about what this false prophet's going to do. He said, he forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. That mark is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Well, let's talk about the symbols here for a minute, and then we'll just tell you how people have understood this, because this is a clue to who the Antichrist is. This refers back to the uh, practice in ancient times, in, in a lot of cultures, ancient times called gematria. And basically, basically what that means is that words or phrases or especially names have values, numerical values, and there are secret connections and secret messages in those numbers. This doesn't make a lot of sense to you and me. It makes a lot of sense in ancient languages. I'm talking about Roman, Greek, Hebrew, Babylonian. They were too poor to afford an alphabet and numerals. We have A, B, C, D, E, F, but we also have one, two, three, four, five, six. They weren't rich enough to afford that. They had to do by making the alphabet both. Okay, that's a joke, but basically this is true. In other words, in those languages, they don't have separate figures to be the number one, the number two. They reuse their letters. It would be like I said to you, A is one, B is two, C is three, D is four. And so I put A, B, C, you'd say that's one plus two, plus, that's the number six. And they do. In fact, if you're reading along in some of these languages, you'll read along and you'll hit this word and you'll go, man, that's just not a word. That makes no sense at all. And you realize it's a number. He's using the letters, putting them together as numbers in that sense. Very common. Well, if your letters are also your numbers, then every word could be calculated. Every name could be calculated, couldn't it? And so when you see it's man's number, it's the number of the name. So what it's saying is, is that if you add up the number of this guy's name, it's 666. Oh, now that's just too interesting. Right? How do historicists want to deal with that? Well, needless to say, historicists say, hmm, the Pope must somehow add up to 666 because that's who they think the Antichrist is. So you begin to look for uh, answers. And here's an example. There are so many of these, I could not possibly tell you how many different ways people have added up the number of words and names to get this. But the historicists would say, for example, the Pope's title in Latin, Vicarius Filii Dei, the Vicar of the Son of God. Now, that's kind of the title for the Pope. Some of those letters are Roman numerals, right? V is 5, right? L is 50, you know, D is 500. If you pluck them out and the Roman numerals that are contained in that, they add up to 666. If you're a historicist, what more proof do you need, you know? That's the Pope. Pope is the Antichrist. And so I'm just saying that's how people have understood it from a historicist point of view. Here's another example how people have understood it. The, and this one's a little weird because Nero Caesar is not Hebrew. But if you spell his name in Hebrew and add up the numbers, 
it adds up to 666. So maybe it was Nero who was the Antichrist. You see what I'm saying? And so I, those are just two little examples of ways people have done it. People have done it with every major figure in history and tried to figure out, can I get their number of their name to be 666 to validate that that must be the Antichrist? So historicists are looking for literally a connection between a name and that number. That makes sense? Now, futurists, not so much. They're going to understand that 666, that mark of the beast, to not necessarily mean that your name adds up to 666, but it's going to be a mark that you get put on you. So it's going to be <laughs> some kind of mark, embedded chip you know, in your hand. Uh, people have thought it was all kinds of things, your social security number, uh, everybody will be given a specific number, that somehow this world, think who this is, a world political power and leader with his prophet, so to speak, beside him, putting his mark on you. Like God marked his people, they're going to somehow mark you. That the 666 is a little bit symbolic of, of some kind of a mark. And you can't buy or sell without it. So maybe it is a embedded chip. Maybe it's a credit card. In other words, a lot of futurists are going to say, in the future, you're going to see some kind of literal, literal mechanism that if you don't have it, you can't buy and sell. And the fact that you have it means you buy into the system of the Antichrist. So a futurist would see it as something literal that's coming. And then, symbolic view is going to understand it in a little different way. And this is going to make a lot of sense to you because let's grab our symbols again. If seven is the perfect number, what do you suppose six is? It's not perfect. It's one taco short of the sampler platter. You know, I mean, it's just missing something, right? Seven is the perfect number. Six is an oh, imperfect number. What happens when you repeat something three times? Remember we said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, that's a way of emphasizing it. It says, well, he's the holiest that you can get. So if you take imperfect, 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 what's it saying? That's the ultimate in unholy, imperfect. If seven is the complete, seven, seven, seven would be kind of like, yes, this is complete, perfect. You know, six, six, six is, ooh, just the opposite. It's complete imperfection. Does that make sense? Symbolic view says, well, that's an easy symbol to decode. We decode every other symbol that way. Six, six, six means man's imperfection. It basically is saying that the mark of this beast is the, whatever mark he puts on you, whatever ideology or religion he preaches to you is, is flawed. It's distorted. Well, that makes sense. We talked about Satan's kind of distorting the Trinity. He's distorting government. He's going to oppress you instead of protect you. Symbolic would say this is everything in history opposed to God, distorting everything of God. Does that make sense? So... These are three different views, but I hope you begin to see how there's thread running. There's a kind of a consistency that runs through this uh, as to how do you understand it from each of the different views. Now, they actually have a lot in common. So when we start to talk about, all right, then, who is the Antichrist? Is it the papacy? Is it the UN? Is it some Middle East figure now? Or symbolic say, it's many people who have tried to do these things, coerce you, deceive you, uh, just distort the truth of God into a lie in some way. Whatever it is, you know, who's this Antichrist? 
This is where these different views, by the way, come together a little bit. They, one may think that it's the papal system, another may think it's going to be a ruler in the Mideast who makes war on Israel, or symbolic who says it's actually a lot of different people have done this. They all are going to agree on the basic attributes of the Antichrist. He's an agent of Satan. He's distorting things. He's oppressing you and me, and he will be judged and crushed by God. But it's possible, because I know a lot of you are sitting there thinking, man, can we not reconcile this and make everybody happy? Well, you can make a couple people happy on this because the symbolic view understands this Antichrist as there have been a lot of them. But it's also possible that there will be one big one in the end. For example, symbolic will look at this in 1 John, he says, Dear children, this is the last hour, meaning we're in the church age. God's going to judge the world at some point. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. That's how we know we're in the, this last time period, this church age. So symbolic would say, like I told you, there are many antichrists. Matthew, Jesus says, for false Christs and false prophets will appear. That's what we just saw, a false Christ, the antichrist, and a false prophet. He says, there will be many of these, he says, and they'll even do miracles to deceive you if it's possible. So symbolic will say there are many, but they would agree with futurists and say, but you know what, it's also possible that in the end there will be kind of a super antichrist and a super false prophet. So these views aren't necessarily always diametrically opposed to each other. And in fact, if you think about it, you think about the attributes of the Antichrist, they actually agree on a lot of things. Make sense? That's the Antichrist. So that's either, the historicist view is looking a little better to you now, if you think about it. That's either already happened or it's in your future. So if it's in your future, I would urge you to be a pre-tribulation rapture person because you need to get out of here before this guy shows up. Questions? Is it true that the Antichrist is supposed to be from Syria? Well, there are futurists who will concoct that idea. When I say concoct, I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I just mean if you put certain things together, you could get that conclusion. I don't think that's a compelling argument. There, but you're going to hear a lot of things. You're going to hear some futurists say it's a Jew. Others will say it's definitely not a Jew. It's a Gentile. Some will say it's from Syria. Some will say it's from some, the Antichrist is somewhere else. The truth is, the text isn't that clear. But some people would disagree with me and say, oh, no, if you put the clues together right, you can figure this out. So some futurists do think that they can predict who and where that individual would come from. And there's an awful future spend a lot of time doing that. And there have been an awful lot of trees killed, so books could be written about who it was and who it was. Oh, wait, not them. It's going to be somebody else. The truth is, it's probably, there's just not enough information here to know who that Antichrist will be specific. If you're a futurist, it's just really hard to pinpoint. If you're a futurist, the best you can do is say, we sure appear to be getting closer to this. By the way, did I tell you about the rapture index? Okay, this is something that certain futurists do. They look at all these events we've talked about, and a few more we're going to get to. And they say, you know, we, ought to, we may not know who the Antichrist is. We may not know when the world's going to end or when the, the tribulation, the seven years is going to begin. But we ought to be able to tell you, are we close or not? So could that be Russia? Could that be China? Could this be this? And so if you go online, and I'm just not encouraging you to do this, but I think I just did, out of curiosity, if nothing else. But there's this little thing that looks at all these factors and has a daily changing index of how close we might be to the rapture based on what's happening. You futurists love that stuff 
And so futurists are really looking for when's that going to happen. Historicists say, already happened. Symbolic says, happened in my head. It's all symbolic. I'm just kidding. But so it kind of depends on your view. Question. Okay. This person says the Hebrew symbol for the word six looks like a W. So is WWW? That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, in, is, is it the World Wide Web, you know? By the way, as long as you got me started on that, it's interesting that if you were the false prophet and you wanted to deceive people, how would you do it? I'd wait and I'd be born now and I would definitely use the internet. So I'm not endorsing that, but I'll tell you, if the false prophet's out there today, definitely using the internet. And by the way, be careful what you read online. You know, just because somebody posts something online doesn't make it true. Go check it out, because there are wild ideas out there. A lot of people get deceived. And I'm talking about Christians being deceived by things they read that, that aren't biblical, but you read them on the Internet, and for some reason we believe it. So, interesting thought. Okay? Well, I hope this has been useful to you in the sense that you see a theme. I mean, they're all, there are a lot of interesting details. You're probably walking out of here thinking, you know... The futurist, I can kind of see a world figure. I could see an ideology or a corruption of Christianity coming. I can see this world ruler mobilizing everybody against Israel and all those seven seals and all those nuclear war. You can see how that futurist understanding is an orthodox Christian idea. It may or may not be right, but it's very consistent. You may be find it compelling to say, you know, okay, that might be true, but really it seems like this message is for all Christians of all times. And this antichrist and false prophet, it's kind of going on now, right? Maybe it's not an individual. Maybe it's all the forces opposed to God. So you begin to see that we can be living this right now. And this message may very well be for us. I want you to know it's a very hopeful message, despite the fact that he says you will need to persevere. You notice that who's in charge of all of this? It's God. Satan wants to be in charge, but he's really not in charge of this. It really is God. So as you see it, there are interesting details, but in a bigger picture, you see God telling us as Christians who understand this and say, I know that times are going to be hard and I'm going to help explain what's going on. It's sort of like when I was watching uh, certain sporting events. It's one of the great things that ESPN has brought about is weird sports that I would never have watched had they not shown them to me. And now I'm an addict, right? I grew up, we never watched hockey. Hockey might as well have been a foreign thing to me. I mean, we didn't live anywhere where you played hockey, etc. I saw hockey and I wondered, what are they doing whacking that thing with those sticks? I mean, it's totally unknown. Then my son explains to me how hockey works, and I go, oh, now I understand why these guys are running each other into the wall out here, right? This all makes sense. Well, that's a small example, but God, this is actually God caring for you and me. And he said, look, in case you think things are out of control, in case you think that evil is overwhelming, let me tell you what's really going on. Satan wants to be in charge of everything, but my son Jesus defeated him. And he's going to cause you trouble for a while, but it's okay. I know who you are. Does that make sense? Powerful message. That's why Revelation is written, to explain to you and me that despite what you see, I'll tell you what's really going on. You can trust me. This is under control. And as you walk out, just walk out with that message, that comfort that, you know, no matter how difficult things get, no matter what your view of Revelation is, we all agree that God is pretty gracious to say, I'm going to tell you what's really going on here. And you're okay because 
I'm still in charge. And he's going to be in charge until July 1st when we get to seven bowls of wrath and Armageddon. Actually, we'll kick off Armageddon next time. So we're going to have Armageddon July 1st. Just want you to get ready. So Armageddon, thousand-year reign. You think these guys argue about how to understand Revelation? Wait till we get to the thousand-year reign. So that's in our future. But for now, go in confidence, and God bless you.